Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. And their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash taxnotes. That's avalara.com slash taxnotes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, more money, more problems? With the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRS is about to see a significant increase in its budget. Despite some alarmist fears, the complete picture of how the money will be spent is not yet clear. So after years of declining funding, what can we expect from this new windfall? In a minute, We'll hear more about that from Tax Notes senior reporter Jonathan Curry. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes federal author Sarah Jane Morin about tax issues involving digital asset brokers. But first, Jonathan, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Dave. So I understand you recently talked to somebody about the IRS budget. Who did you talk to? Yeah, so our guest this week was Robert Kerr. He has his own tax consulting shop now, but he's had a long career in tax that's really covered a lot of bases. He's worked at the IRS for a decade in the 90s, and then he went on to work on Capitol Hill as an aide to Senator Grassley. And he also had a long stint working with the National Association of Enrolled Agents, you know, advocating for the tax professional community. So he's really well-versed in just about everything tax. He knows tax policy, he knows tax administration, tax practice, you name it. All right. And uh, what all did you talk about? Well, naturally, we brought him on to talk about that $80 billion pot of funding the IRS was just granted last month as part of that Inflation Reduction Act. Now, we talked about how all this new money coincides with the changing of the guard at the top. You know, Commissioner Reddick's term is set to expire in November, and the IRS is just about to have, well, they now have all this new money to spend. And we also talked about just how long-term this funding really is guaranteed for. You know, it's supposed to be for 10 years, but will it actually last that long? And yes, we, you will find out once and for all if there is indeed an army of 87,000 gun-toting IRS agents coming after your grandmother. Well, I can't wait to hear. So let's go to that interview. All right. Well, Bob, it's great to have you here in the studio at 400 South Maple Avenue for this podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. So we're going to jump into it. So last month, President Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act. And there was a lot in there, but we're going to spotlight just one wee little provision in there. $80 billion in additional funding for the IRS that they get to spend over the next decade. So tell me, Bob, does the IRS regularly get $80 billion infusions of cash from Congress? Or is this kind of a special event happening here? Yes, this is a special event. I love the frame there. Um, it's happened approximately never as far as my memory goes. IRS has never been presented with a bump. Well, and even just with any any increase to the agency's budget is surprising, but something of this magnitude is I've I've never seen it. Not even close. So first we need to get this out of the way. 
Will there, in fact, be an army of 87,000 armed IRS agents coming to pillage your grandmother's village because of this bill? Well, they're not coming to my grandmother's village. I don't know about your grandmother's village. No, they're, in fact, it's, it's, uh, what's absolutely remarkable is how much airplay this assertion has, has gotten. It is completely unmoored from reality. Um, which doesn't make it any less tenacious. Uh, you will see it everywhere. You'll see it on Instagram, for Pete's sake. No, it's, it's, and the short answer is no, it's not 87,000 agents, you know, with air quote, whatever an agent is. You know, I know the IRS does, you know, gets politicized, becomes a punching bag for both sides as it befits them. Have you ever seen anything like these kinds of claims coming out of the far corners of the, of the Internet? And really now, in this case, fairly mainstream sources as well? Or is this sort of a peculiar moment that we're experiencing here? I think it's a question more of magnitude than it is of direction. I don't think it's at all uncommon to hear scurrilous things related to IRS. IRS is not, uh, if you're going to going to rank and order the favorite federal agencies, I don't think it makes the top of anyone's list outside of this room. So there's, there's that baseline that I think is important to keep in mind. But what we're seeing recently, and, and it, Jonathan, it may be sort of part and parcel of the overall deterioration of political discourse in, in this city, particularly and writ more largely in this country. That said, it's, it's to the extent that we're seeing this type of persistent untruths, I think that that is new and unfortunate. So this is long-term funding, and it comes out to about $8 billion a year. And it's for an agency whose annual budget is really about $13 billion. That's more than half of what they're getting now. This is a huge amount of cash, right? I mean, but is it really long-term funding in the way that it's been sort of signed into law? On two fronts here. First, yes, it really is. It's not only a you know a supplement to the IRS's base budget. It is a <laughs> significant. It's a massive supplement to the base. To the, the larger question, which I think is one that's of many things that kind of get lost in the shuffle here, it's, at least on paper, it's theoretically 10 years worth of funding for $80 billion. That's how the provision is written within the Inflation Reduction Act, which I'm thankful that you don't shorthand to IRA, which makes me just crazy because there's nothing in it about IRAs. So over 10 years, and if you, if you assume even spending, you know, it's about $8 billion a year, I'd suggest to you it's not going to be even spending. And I would also sort of clarify for the audience here that current Congress can't tie the hands of future Congress. So what we have here is as long as you have a Democratic president and one of the chambers is Democratic, well, in fact, as long as you have a Democratic president for the next two years, IRS is is good to go. And then what happens in another two years? Well, that will remain to be seen. So this is only about two years that this is guaranteed. I mean, what does the IRS need to do in these two years to give themselves the best chance of holding on to this cash for a longer period of time. Iris is in a position, and I think that the, the, the Treasury Secretary, her recent statements on, all right, Iris, I've given you a big homework assignment. You've got six months to produce a spend plan, uh, or, or I would call it a spend plan, but really a spend plan has to be backing up what are you going to do with it. The agency, well, let me back up. The fact that Treasury is asking for it, I think, is significant and meaningful. And I think that that's gotten lost also in the shuffle here, that it's not, here's $8 billion a year, just have at it. Treasury is going to be keeping a, a pretty close eye on it because the agency, it has to succeed here. And to your question then, what do we expect from the plan? Well, 
I believe we need to see something that instills confidence that the agency, in fact, has a plan, that the plan is a reasonable one, and that it's achievable, it's accomplishable, if that's even a word. So set down the marker, here's where we're going, here's how we're getting there, and here's some intermediate milestones. Because otherwise, how are are people who have a legitimate oversight responsibilities, how do they provide oversight? Yeah. Right. And this six-month report, there was you know, there was a provision actually in the Inflation Reduction Act itself at one point that required the IRS to issue this report within six months. Saying, and then milestones do. or in- interim reports. Yeah, that, then didn't they get peeled out? It was, uh, was a, a bird dropping? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Senate parliamentarian ruled that you can't include that provision for their various procedural reasons. The reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation. Yeah. There's a lot of fun. I love the bird rule jargon that comes with that. <laughs> a lot of creativity there. But then I guess we got the next best thing. The Treasury Secretary Yellen wrote a letter to Commissioner Reddick, essentially pledging or really ordering the IRS to do this. We're watching you work with us on this because this is a pretty high profile thing for them, right? It's enormously high profile. It's This is precisely wrong, but roughly right. IRS is probably some 90% of Treasury in staff years in budget. And historically, the expectation from from Treasury to IRS is go do whatever you're going to do. I don't want to see you above the fold. I don't want to see you in the post. I don't want to see you in the time. I don't want to see you above the fold. In this case, the, the infusion is so significant. And I think that the stakes are so high that Treasury just simply has to be involved. So at this point, there's been a lot of criticism that the IRS, you know, isn't prepared to spend $80 billion and that sort of thing. I mean, do you think a lot is hinging on this six-month report that's going to be coming out to sort of tamp down that criticism? And is it sort of almost like a a last, not maybe last, but like a major opportunity for the IRS to say, hey, we got this, we can handle this. And if they screw it up, you know, that might start the voices chattering in Congress saying, well, maybe we should make a $60 billion or something like that. Well, you've just lofted out there. I think there are two pieces to it. The one that I found more interesting was this notion of, well, you can't spend that. You know, you, somehow that there's a, a throughput problem. And I think that there's some some truth to it in the sense that if it, the agency is, is built right now as a $12 billion agency, how do you actually turn that into a $20 billion agency? Yeah. And there are in, in my estimation, there's, there are some challenges in that proposition. How do you hire? Going back to 87,000, which is not 87,000 armed people coming to your grandmother's village, but it is roughly 87,000 people in. And just the, the, the hiring process, how do you do that? And IRS is suggesting 5,000 in the early years and then sort of ramping up to 12,000 a year. And without turning this into a, a monologue on the challenges of federal hiring, I would just suggest that it's hard. It's harder than it looks. For as long as I've been on this beat, Commissioner Reddick, they've had, they've had money now to hire for taxpayer services, phone assisters, and things like that in processing. And what they're kind of running into is it's kind of hard to keep those people in a period of low unemployment when you're competing against Amazon for kind of similar jobs. To me, it's a tremendous headwind, which is this isn't IRS's fault, to be clear. The federal hiring process, you post, it goes to usajobs.gov or whatever that is, and you log in and you have to create not a resume, but something that looks like an SF-171 because, of course, it's the federal government and we have a form for that. (laughs) And then it goes off to IRS and into the void and takes however long to hear if you ever hear. And then 
background checks even add another layer of complexity and time. And next thing you know, it could be, I don't know, eight months before that person is onboarded. Mm -hmm. And who wants to wait eight months to figure out that I get to go answer questions for IRS? When you could be getting paid basically the same or more at a private competitor and be hired next week. It's a challenge for them and it's a hard one to figure out the answer to. I know the IRS has been granted uh, direct hire authority for certain positions this year for, for that. And that, that's helped them with the hiring effort. But even still, the competition is challenging. Well, and the direct hiring, I thought this was really important. It was in the original Build Back Better. And then again, through the reconciliation process, it stripped out. There was a provision for some 500 direct hire, which that loss, I believe, is significant. I believe that that provision helped the agency hire at higher levels because of the, of the pay flexibility. But it wasn't only the pay flexibility. It was also the ease of which they could hire. All of that fell out through reconciliation. And the agency, I think, would be, would be much better situated today if that it hadn't fallen out. So this $80 billion is coming at kind of an interesting time. You know, it's right as Commissioner Reddick's term is set to expire, I believe on November 12th is his last day holding that position. So this next person taking the role is going to be really overseeing this effort. Who should be next for this? Any thoughts on what the candidate should look like? I agree with you, Jonathan, that the timing appears to be fortuitous, that the funding supplement appears on the horizon at the same time that a new commissioner coming in for a five-year term. That is, to my sense, is good. And I think to most people who follow tax administration, they think that that's good. Begging the question of, well, then who's the perfect candidate? And I would, you know, different folks are going to have different biases, I suppose. I would see someone who once again goes back to more of a Charles Rosati model, someone who brings in some significant large organization, private sector, customer service, modernization, IT chops. Yeah, absolutely. And that'd be sort of a contrast to what we currently have now. I think Commissioner Reddick has been something of an anomaly in the past two decades or so since the IRS Reform and Restructuring Act, where Reddick is a He's a tax practitioner, professional from, he served as a, with a tax controversy attorney, partner at a firm out in California for a long time, a couple of decades. And most of the commissioners, appointed ones at least, were, as you described, more of a Charles Rosati type with private sector management type experience. And you think that's probably better for the moment now? Sort of a bit of inserting history here. Prior to RRA 98, commissioners were tax attorneys. That, that was the model back in the day. So when there, I think the tax is one of those funny industries that we hang out here forever. And so people are out there in radio land and pod land are going to be saying, but wait, no, no, it's not that way. And so (laughs) you have this long history of of tax attorneys. That said, you don't have a long history of IRS getting, I don't know, a 70% supplement for the next 10 years and, and asked to do the things it's going to be asked to do. So my preference would be to see somebody who has that level of expertise in a customer service, IT, accounts management experience, who should be bringing in or consulting with people who have real tax experience. Because when the rubber hits the road, the agency is a tax authority. And bringing in somebody who has those technical skills without having the ability to marry them to what it is the agency actually does, I think will present its own challenges. 
Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Now is the time to focus on firm preparation because same as last year is no longer working for your staff or clients. It's more important than ever to assess current firm processes and make improvements. The SafeSend suite automates manual labor-intensive tasks across the tax engagement, from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, the SafeSend suite makes it easy. Automation is transforming how firms work. Schedule a demo at SafeSend.com to get started and smile knowing that you will be ready for next tax season. So how important is this role really? I mean, do IRS commissioners, do they really leave their mark on the agency or are they more just like a figurehead at the top stewarding the sprawling bureaucracy? Oh, I absolutely think that they can and do make a difference. So the the question then here, how important? I'd say it's it's very important. And it and maybe we're going to go in this direction anyways. It sort of begs the question of when when are we going to see another commissioner coming around the mountain, given that we don't have a nominee yet? Yeah, right. And it's a presidential appointed Senate confirmed position. That process can, in your experience, takes a while, correct? So the the process or the the length of time between a president making the nomination and the full Senate approving that nomination can be lengthy. For the nominee, it can be both tedious and intrusive. So one of and this is sort of Bob's pet peeve is that it, that we we subject people who are highly qualified to a process that is so distasteful. And we ask them to put their lives on hold during it. So I, I wouldn't want to undersell that that the process itself is a challenge, to put it kindly. So here we are without a nominee, and it's, it's September. If we had one tomorrow, I'd suggest we'd be lucky to see that him or her on the job in six months. So it's going to be a while. Sooner is better than later. Is there a possibility that since this has now become sort of a high-profile initiative of the Biden administration that they might try to accelerate things a bit? Sure. Jonathan, anything's possible. So I wouldn't say no. Recent history has shown us that it takes a long time to get a commissioner nominee. For instance, Chuck Reddick was about a year late onto the job, given what the five-year term is. So the 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 other issue, and this is sort of, I suppose, tilting at windmills, the administration knows that the commissioner will term out in November of 22. It has known this since, you know, it's known this for four years. The prior administration, which doesn't matter, but this one has known for a while, and, and we don't have a nominee. And I don't know whether that's simply a, a question of priority or a question of how do you find someone willing to take that job? Yeah, it's a big ask. I, I did I do an article recently where I spoke with former commissioner um, John Koskinen, who had held that job a couple years ago. To him, he actually was, he said that that might be an exciting opportunity. Now, it wouldn't have been before the IRS got this funding when they were just trying to keep things afloat while being constantly short on cash and being yelled at by Congress, you know, every other week. But with this, you know, with $80 billion to spend for the right person, it could be an incredibly attractive opportunity. But like you mentioned, <laughs> Congress nomination vetting process can be brutal. And Jonathan, I, I completely agree with Commissioner Kuskinen or former Commissioner Kuskinen on, on that assessment. Because without that, it's just beatings will be administered until morale improves and you get to trot over to the hill and have somebody yell at you. In this new environment, you might have the ability to make real change 
And that, I think, for a certain set of people is profoundly exciting. So, Bob, one thing that's been included in this bill that's sort of a, a quirk is that President Biden has really since he's taken office and before that even, he's pledged he's not going to raise taxes on those earning more than $400,000 a year. And of course, you know, to tax nerds, that gets a little bit messy when you try to say, well, how do you define $400,000 in income and things like that? But in the context of this uh, $80 billion of funding, the, the Biden administration and its officials and all that, they've gone through extreme lengths to emphasize that they're not going to increase audits on those earning less than $400,000 relative to recent historical norms, which is somewhat of a... A fluid number, but I want to hear your thoughts on that. How does this actually play out? Is this going to hamstring the IRS? What's your gut reaction here? Lots of questions. Let me try to unpack them. I found extremely interesting the the flourish, and I think from it was from the secretary, and I think it was in a second letter, not the first. If I remember this order of events, sort of a second letter that came out, in which she. It appeared to be sort of a throwaway line saying, relative to historic levels of enforcement. I thought that that was needful and wise, by the way, because it, it to me, it does two things. Number one, I, I believe that it adheres to the spirit of the pledge on $400,000. Now, we could take a jolly romp here on whether $400,000 is really what middle class is in this country, but that's just, you know we'll, we'll stipulate for the moment that it is. So it gives IRS some room to navigate, and it acknowledges, by the way, that IRS audit coverage rate performance or any sort of coverage rate that you would consider in collection as well has been on a decided downward trend. In exam, IRS has tried to pick up the slack to, you know, do the annual report that shows the, the data book. Yeah, sure. So as they've, I think, has tried with some success to fill in the gap with correspondence audits. I think what we're going to see here is real audits throughout the strata because there's there's room both below and above $400,000. Um, on the collection side, you'll see the same. And I think collection presents its own sort of challenge because how do I know? If you haven't filed a return, I mean, I, have, I might, as IRS, I might have a sense whether you're over or under. The agency needs a little space to breathe. And this provides that I think it's needful, I think it's necessary. And I think that most people would suggest that it's ordinary and necessary. You know, I also had a conversation with Nina Olson. She at the Center for Taxpayer Rights. She's also a tax analyst board member. But she was she pointed out to me recently an audit is a specifically defined term. And so that, you know, saying you're not going to raise audits doesn't necessarily preclude other sub-audit type of enforcement activities. A soft, you know, a soft notice letter saying, hey, from the IRS saying, hey, we think you owe this. Is that an audit? I'm on the same page with Nina on this notion of what sort of what is or what isn't an audit. And she has is known to be excited about this. I'm also excited about math error notices, which in fact are not audits, but they look and smell and taste like an audit. (laughs) So I think perhaps she was going there and I certainly don't disagree with her. Yeah. I wouldn't also recommend eating your math error notices, but... I've never tried myself, but I also do not recommend. (laughs) We've talked about how this $80 billion is really unprecedented just in its scope, but are there any lessons from the past that the IRS can learn or put to work as it as it spends this money and comes up with its plans and maybe some pitfalls to avoid, things like that? Of course there are. I'm, as you were asking the question, I was my mind was flashing to the mall, to the archives building where they have the statues outside that says, on the one hand, past is prologue. And 
on the other hand, study the past. So I, I think that that admonition is, is true here as well. This is not the first time IRS has tried to overhaul its operations. It has a, a long history of these, these efforts, which have had mixed success. So I think that there is great value in it. There's great value in figuring out what did we do well and what, where, did we, where did we struggle? As I've seen, and I've, I had a, a row, you know, I had cheap seats for these things. I think the agency struggles in determining what it is building. So determining requirements, contracting out to have them built, and then incessant change orders. So that you started by saying, I want A. And then you're halfway through and you say, I want A minus B plus C plus half of F. And, and it, it becomes a significant problem to get the work done when you can't nail down what the requirements are. I know Commissioner Reddick got pretty much every congressional hearing I've heard him speak at. He's, he's, he's always emphasized we need long-term consistent funding. He says that that'll sort of help with the start-stop and kind of make it so that projects can be seen through to completion, hopefully. So... I know he envisions that as, as helping with that. Again, we'll see how long-term this really truly is. And Jonathan, if I may, I don't want to leave folks with this with the sense that this is two-year money. It's, it's, it's built as, as 10-year money. And it may, in fact, be somewhere close to 10 years in, in, in the payout. We don't know, though. So because of that, we start. I think we start talking about, we know we can get things done in two years, so let's go. Any sort of potential pain points for the IRS in the next few years to watch out for, things they should try to avoid, or that could end up derailing this funding? Or you know, are these pain points somewhat inevitable? When you ask, are any potential pain points, I think, oh my gosh, yes, there's all kinds, <laughs> there's, you know, there's all kinds of possible pain points. I think one of the, the struggles, as uh, if you're within the agency doing, in your mind, God's work, is that there is no shortage of, of Monday morning quarterback and no shortage of people taking pot shots from the cheap seats. So it, to lead there is to have a, a thick skin. So there, there is that because there's going to be all kinds of critiquing going on. The success of the enterprise, I believe, is going to be predicated on having a solid, workable plan, one that is understandable, and one in which IRS is talking about its progress. I think that there's opportunities as well for the agency to recast itself here through the process. And I like an idea of recasting itself more as a, as a service. That we, you know, we look at what we do through the prism of taxpayer service, through any part of the cycle, of the taxpayer cycle, which would be pre-filing, filing, and post-filing. So throughout that entire time frame, the agency is there to provide service. Now, in some cases, you know, post-filing service, people aren't all that wildly excited about because, well, it's enforcement. It is part of the whole, and it doesn't mean that it can't be done through a, a service prism. I know one of the critiques I've heard from Republicans has been that, you know, it's for the IRS, you know, but the $80 billion is broken up into four different accounts. One is about 40-some billion dollars for enforcement, and then the rest is sort of divided up amongst taxpayer services, operations, like keeping buildings running, and IT modernization. And so do you think that these two sort of objectives of really making the IRS more taxpayer service focused, thinking about things from their perspective, can jive, if you want to say, with the pretty clearly big allotment towards enforcement in particular? Do you think that that could be worked together? Absolutely. And, and Jonathan, I'm so glad that you raised this issue 
You're absolutely correct. You know, it's at the highest level, it's roughly $80 billion. It's a little less. And about a little more than half of that 45.6 plus or minus billion for enforcement. You've got about $25 billion for operational support. You've got $4.75 billion for business systems modernization. And then $3.18 billion, which in most worlds is a lot of money for taxpayer service. But it begs the question of, without being too cute about it, what is taxpayer service? I would argue in this context, a taxpayer service, IRS looks at taxpayer services toll-free, 1-800-TAX-1040, walk-in. Maybe parts of the IRS website falls under under the rubric of taxpayer service. But let's walk around and look at enforcement. How much of that is revenue agents, revenue officers, and how much of that is responding to a CP2000 notice or a math error notice? So you get the notice, IRS, we're adjusting your balance due by X thousand dollars. You pick up the phone and you talk to somebody. And is that customer service? I would argue yes. And I would argue that in that case, that's coming from the $45.6 billion enforcement bucket. So as we think about this, I think that that's an important issue to drive home. So that does it for my questions. Any last sort of parting thought and just about the fact the IRS is, you know, they have this big grant of money, anything that our listeners should walk away with? Jonathan, I know this is trite, but I'm going to say it anyways. Failure is not an option here. This is a a once in a generation opportunity for the agency to modernize, to meet the expectations and needs of, of taxpayers. And it simply has to succeed. And frankly, it's in everyone's interest that the agency does. So it's in taxpayers' interest, it's in industry interest, it's in tax professional interest. We should all be rooting for and doing everything we can to help. Bob, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for the invitation. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief, Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In TaxNets Federal, Jason DeBacher uses numerical simulations to demonstrate the effects of inflation on corporate investment incentives under the U.S. tax system. Stephanie Hunter-McMahon advocates for Congress to enact, when possible and to otherwise push for, an expansion of the social safety net for prison labor. In TaxNets State, This installment of Board Briefs features TaxNote State Advisory Board members discussing the impact of South Dakota v. Wayfair four years later. Tony Santiago examines factors that have contributed to the trend of title and salary inflation in the U.S. tax market. In TaxNotes International, Reuven Aviona looks at the tax court's recent Medtronic II decision and considers how the new corporate alternative minimum tax may provide a solution to the profit-shifting problem. Also, in the wake of the recent Medtronic II decision, J. Harold McClure reconsiders the Medtronic litigation focusing on the application of the unspecified method. In Featured Analysis, Joseph Thorndike examines how FDR relied on moralistic rhetoric on fairness and fiscal citizenship that reshaped American taxation for decades to come. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Notes Federal Editor-in-Chief Ariel Greenblum. Thanks, Paige. I'm here with Sarah Jane Morin, a partner with Borgen, Lewis, and Bacchius. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah Jane. Thank you. Good to be here. 
We're here to discuss your Tax Notes Federal article titled, How the Definition of Digital Asset Brokers Was Brokered, which you co-wrote with three practitioners from Morgan Lewis. Could you give us a brief overview of the article? Happy to. Our article looks at the curious and the fascinating, in my view, history of the enactment of Code Section 6045C1D, which also has, as we discuss in the article, an ongoing interplay with Treasury and Senators. The legislation that we review in the article was enacted into law as part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and it amended the definition of broker, quote-unquote broker, in Section 6045C1D to broadly include any person who, for consideration, is responsible for regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets on behalf of another person. So in other words, the amendment would require brokers, quote unquote brokers of digital assets to report information to the IRS and to entities or individuals regarding digital asset transfers. Defining broker really caused a kerfuffle among stakeholders in the industry and among the tax practitioners that we've spoken to. And we go into detail into this in the article and why it was such a kerfuffle. As you might suspect, the reason it is important is how you define broker in turn defines who is subject to the reporting requirement. And many stakeholders expressed concern at the time this legislation was enacted that it was too broad and it would pick up people or entities or organizations that shouldn't be doing this reporting. There were several attempts, as we describe in the article, to amend the legislation before it was enacted into law. Those attempts failed. But we do describe them in the article and what they would have done had they been successful. Pre-enactment of the law, several senators entered into, and this is where I think it really gets interesting, a a so-called colloquy on the Senate floor to try to clarify the definition of broker in their view. A colloquy is, in my words, essentially a chat, but it's entered into the congressional record. That is very fascinating to me in terms of whether or not that colloquy is precedential. Should we look back to it in terms of interpreting the law going forward, or is it too convenient, you know, too cute in a way to look back to? So we talk about that in the article. Lastly, in the article, we talk about some letters. After that colloquy I mentioned, senators and Treasury engaged in writing letters to each other about 6045C1D and how they interpret it and what they expect future regulations promulgated thereunder to say. They referenced the colloquy in those letters, interestingly, so we talk about that in the article. Those letters were also made public, as we discuss in the article, on Twitter. So we talk about that aspect as well. In short, the article is really a great overview of the legislative process that played out in 6045 C1D becoming a law and how it was played out in a very public manner and on Twitter. So it's a great insight into what might have been going on behind the scenes 
in this rulemaking process. Thank you. What prompted you to write about it? Well, my co-authors and I are all heavily involved in the digital asset tax space in some form or fashion. We consume lots of written material, as I'm sure you know, have seen also about digital assets all the time. There's a lot of great information out there. What we hadn't seen, and we do talk about these issues, was anything looking at 6045C1D from the perspective of how it became a law and those various push and pulls that I raised earlier, that colloquy, those letters. We really liked that angle and wanted to get into that a little more, more meaningfully. I also personally received a number of inquiries from stakeholders in the industry and other tax practitioners about colloquies and whether they carry precedential weight. I mean, should we be reviewing this colloquy and having it all printed out you know, next to us to, as a way of interpreting law? And I couldn't find much discussion of that. So that seemed like a great angle for an article as well. And in fact, when we looked into it, there is case law on colloquies, which we describe in the article. So we thought all of that collectively would make a great discussion for an article. Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? So I can be reached through email or phone. My biography is on the Morgan Lewis and Bacchius website. It has all my information. I welcome any calls or emails about colloquies or otherwise. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Sarah Jane. Thank you for having me. You could find Sarah Jane's co-authored article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.